Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to Philosophy Now on Resonance FM. With me, I have Dan Hutto from, from the University of Wollongong and Hertfordshire. We'll be talking about Ludwig Wittgenstein, controversial philosopher of language, and a mystically inclined logician. Wittgenstein, 1889 to 1951, was a strange, intense thinker who constructed a theory of how language works twice. That is to say, the early Wittgenstein, as represented in his 1922 book, The Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, has a picture theory of meaning where language represents the world, whereas the later Wittgenstein, as represented in his 1953 book, Philosophical Investigations, saw language as a set of games in which we recognise the use of words. In this show, I want to try and discover more precisely what these two different theories of meanings of words are, why Wittgenstein thought them, what implications they have for how we are to think about life, the universe and philosophy, and why he swapped one theory for the other. First, though, let's set the scene for his work and words. Well, Dan, hello. Uh, hello. Pleased to have you on the show. Uh, could you... Let's start by... Could you tell us a bit more about the context in which Wittgenstein was... Uh, putting forward his theory in, in the first book. We'll cover the first book in this first half of the Good. show. Good. I mean, Wittgenstein's Tractatus, I mean, I, I, um, uh, is is a hard nut to crack. Right. To, to put it simply, um, uh, I think, I, as I mentioned to you just prior to the show, right. um, I, I enjoy kind of uh, David Payer's way of, of capturing it by saying the book is plainly enigmatic. So it's only 70-odd pages, right. and you have seven main propositions that it's organised around, and um, then you have these sub-propositions throughout. So it's very kind of right. apparently very neatly and logically ordered piece of work. Um, but it does kind of throw you. It doesn't give much of a back narrative. Okay. So in terms of its context, if you think about it, um, the only two figures that are actually named in the book uh, are Wittgenstein... Uh, sorry, Wittgenstein wrote it, uh, are Russell and Frege. Yeah. Uh, so those are the two main figures and those are figures in Wittgenstein's own life. Sure, they who, were alive. They I mean, were, Russell taught Wittgenstein. Right? That's right. And uh, he taught Wittgenstein after Wittgenstein had approached Frege right. um, and more or less in some ways you might characterise that as Frege pushed Wittgenstein onto Russell. Right. Sorry, Frege was a German logician. He invented a logical way of uh, uh, representing ordinary language around the beginning of the 20th century. That's right. Okay. And, and Russell similarly worked in mathematical logic and gave us the kind of fantastic um, uh, Principia Mathematica and with, with Whitehead gave us a kind of a, a hard target if you like for, for Wittgenstein um, both were pioneers in connecting. So what were they trying to do? Then? So, uh, well, both figures were trying to give us a kind of a, a move. I mean, Frege is best known perhaps from his move away from psychologism right. in, when it comes to logic. So we wanted to divorce our thinking about the nature of logic from psychological theories that tried to ground it in ideas that were subjective or otherwise. So it was an objectifying move. And and similarly, with uh, and, and although they differed in... in in precise respects to their accounts, there is a similarity here with with Russell. Um, Russell had himself started out as a form of idealist um, initially, and then moved away from this under the influence of G. E. Moore, and eventually put forward a whole theory that was going to give us a uh, a logical grounding uh, for mathematics. And this was these were projects 
um, that both were deeply involved with. So they're, they're trying to find a logical grounding for mathematics and philosophical language, perhaps? Well, yes, indeed, and that came into it. We wanted to generalise, because logic was all-encompassing for these figures. Right. Um, we also wanted to get a, if you like, in one way or another, both will speak of a science of logic, a substantive science. Right. So in these cases, you would see... I think if we were getting to the finery of the background here, um, yeah. you'd, you'd find that um, Russell's project has a more metaphysical bent than Frege's. And I would say, too, that in, although both figures appear and Wittgenstein responds to both in the book, that perhaps you could understand his response in the book best as a, a response to Russell and some of Russell's more... Um, so, so interestingly, he, he talks of the great works of Frege and there's more an agreement yeah. with those and he speaks of his friend Russell. Right. Um, and Russell found him to be utterly distressing. So could you give me an example of what particular sort of problem uh, in Russell Wittgenstein was responding to by writing this uh, tractatus, uh, which means treatise, this treatise on logical philosophy? Yeah, um, I think one, one way to capture it, though this may seem obscure when I first say it, um, one, one central issue was that uh, for Wittgenstein, logic being non-accidental, analytic, necessary, couldn't be grounded in anything contingent. So there couldn't be any laws concerning logic where logic, as he would put it, logic has to take care of itself. Yeah. And So it's got nothing to do with the real universe. It's sort of entirely self-contained. Well, it, it has, uh, if you like, it, it would, I think Wittgenstein recognised logic has a special status. Right. It's not just going to be... So when Frege said logic would be, we should understand it objectively, like the science of heat. It sounds like you have just one more special science, but a more general and absolute one, right. um, along, you know, on a par with other sciences. Right. One of the things that Tractatus tells us very clearly is whatever philosophy is, it is not on a par with science. Right. So if you start with that thought, that's one way. There are many different ways you could approach the book, but right. that's one way of thinking what's, what's really going on here. So think, too, that in Problems of Philosophy, Russell was promoting the idea that um, you would get the most general science from logic. So right. philosophers would be scientists of a sort, but we would have a special domain um, that of the most general truths right. concerning logic. Right. Wittgenstein's going to deflate that ambition okay. um, quite considerably. Okay, so is there, um, is there a specific problem that Wittgenstein is trying to solve in the Tractatus? Then? Hmm. Um, two, reply to two, two different things. Um, um, one, uh, I suppose, it, it's very difficult to grasp text. The one thing he says in the book that is his fundamental thought is that the logical constants don't represent. So if you like, right. one of the things that connects with what I was just saying a moment ago uh -huh. would be... Um, it would be that the propositions of logic say nothing. So they so are... So give me a proposition of logic, though, from really basic. A uh, super basic kind of case would be something like, uh, you know, if we had written in symbolism, if we were given in English something like just something that it, it's both raining and it's not raining, right. something like this. Um, an interesting case here that's is... A, that's a logical falsehood. Right. It's never going to be true in any circumstance. That's right? right. And it's not made true. So it differentiates itself for him from other facts. Like if I were to say there are six chairs, I haven't counted them in the room. Right. Then presumably that's going to made, be made true by how things stand with the world. 
whereas the first one is not made true by how anything is standing with the world okay anywhere ever i mean i used to quip that um i could give uh write a job description for myself based on that kind of example f- right. to work for the bbc and you know as a weatherman make sure that i never make any errors um and promise them as a gig you know if they f- they accept that that challenge that they should well, it's raining and it's not raining yes it's raining so my, my weather my weather report would be it's sunny or it's not sunny um, yeah. all of those would be perfectly absolutely true all the time yeah, and yet and yet and yet and here's the important point for wittgenstein and yet tell you nothing right so they don't have a substantive don't they tell you about the nature of logic well that's the question and right. if they do Wittgenstein thinks they reveal something about the nature Ooh, of logic right. but they don't state anything about it right okay fine. so that's the crucial point um, and this will come back to again and again in the book so the idea here is uh, it's not going to tell you something by advancing a claim that you could treat as a substantial uh, substantial um, Remark, and that I think he thought is the fundamental confusion. So I think in the book, the, the, right. the, the, to target, or he tells you that's his fundamental idea. He also, however, tells you um, the point of the book is ethical. Right, so okay. it's interesting. That so, on the one hand, there's there's language of logic which tells you the the truths of logic or shows the truths of logic. Shows them, on other perhaps. on the other hand, there's language which tells you truths about the world or falsehoods about the world mm-hmm. and then, and then there's, there's ethical and other truths which don't fit into either of those categories that's exactly right so for Wittgenstein um, you've kind of got in the Tractatus you might some people would uh, in some attempts to explain what he's doing would say you have several different types of sentences right um, as you say the ordinary bog standard uh, st- sentences of ordinary life and science too that just give you straightforward factual matters like mars is orbiting between earth and jupiter for right instance. they make perfect sense they make substantive claims they can't be known true a priori you, you yeah. need to go and investigate how things stand with the world um in those cases one of the things he says they unambiguously pick out the things that they're going to talk about um for wittgenstein in the early phase of his thinking so it seems i'll come back to all this by the way right. one, one important thing is whether we should take Wittgenstein as advancing any claims at all. Right, but we okay. need to return to that. Sure. Um, we'll but that's that an issue. End, but but on the, for the moment, on the face of it, it looks like you have a lot of claims about what language, how it functions and how it must function. Right. And there... Um, so those, those, those were one set of things. Then there's this other um, aspect, uh, which separates them as, as different in kind, right? This other way, logical... Uh, what he says, the so-called propositions of logic, because they're not genuinely propositions. Right. They right. don't say anything um, on his view. So they're anything but the basis for a substantial science, right. uh, in some sense. They can reveal how they operate in the, what we do yeah. and how the world is and what can, what can contradict or what cannot. But the way they go together has nothing to do with what we think or say. It's, 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 it's very realist in its own right, if you like, or objectivist. What but does it's mean, not that mean? Well, in the sense that it's not up to us. Some people think right. of logic as only concerned with our with our thinking. So logic would be true even if there was no people around, right? Logic pervades the world, as he would put right. it. So if there was no truth around, then what what makes things um, connect or not is built into the into the objects in the early view right. and how they combine and can't combine. So what, they're possibilities. Objects in the world, physical objects, you mean? And no. Uh, um, okay. Unfortunately, it's not that easy with Wittgenstein. So we don't just mean bog-standard ordinary things. We mean whatever 
the unspeakable, unmentionable objects, which I can't even give you an example of, which famously he gives you no example of. Right. Uh, so he's talking about he's got a word for something, but we don't know what he's talking about. He's got a word for the things that would make the substance of all possible worlds, but which you can't get to without analysis, but it's an analysis that we can't conduct. So we know logically right. that these things should be implied to exist because they are the basis for forming our senses, but we're not talking about ordinary things in, in these cases. Is it the same as uh, what Kant would call the world as it is in itself? Um, or the world independent it's interesting. of our senses? Uh, uh, Sorry, it's that's interesting. No, 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 that's a good question. Um, and certainly the unspeakable essence of the world um, comes very close to the Kantian noumena right, right. in some respect. Uh, I don't think that they... Um, he, uh, look, he, he, there's a few places where Wittgenstein himself says that he's um, he sees philosophy... Uh, Kant has almost given us the basis for doing philosophy in the correct right. way. So I think there's an interesting question about the connection between these two. One difficulty in this is we don't have the Kantian concepts. We also don't have... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this sounds technical, but we don't have the notion of the synthetic a priori. So right. that, uh, you can't just read Wittgenstein as a, a straightforward Kantian. I think that's, okay. that would be difficult and problematic. Okay, so um, what does Wittgenstein mean when he says right at the beginning of the Tractatus that the world, the first proposition of it, or the, which can be taken, I suppose, to be the sort of uh, foundation of it, is... The world is everything that is the case. This is a sort of mm -hmm. assertion about the nature of the world, is that the world is everything that is the case, and then he says the world is the totality of facts, not things. What does he mean by this? I think that's... Um, he was very um, economical in right. his way he set things up, and as you can see, these things come at you ex cathedra. There's no foreplay in the book. Yeah, he just he, he asserts just, them, right? Well, yes, it, it's got this kind of... You know, a train for a short book. Uh, you don't get a lot of um, explanation. No. Uh, but if you compare, as I said earlier, uh, go back to, um, and I think this is really central to the comparison with Russell. So for Russell, um, we start out with entity following more. We start out with terms, which are the basic building blocks of all reality. Which he called propositions. Uh, well, he considered the complex. Um, forms uh, when you combine terms in certain yeah. ways, they form propositions. Right. But their most basic, um, they were more like they operated much more like that the kind of thing that could be mentioned. So uh, a cat, a ta so they were much more in the naive first version, much more like the ordinary objects. So you can almost yeah. see the tra tra trajectory back to the kind of questions we just went through. If you trace through the views of early Russell and how they transformed, and where he and Russell disagreed in right. the later period, I think you'd understand better where the book emerges from. So you kind of have to do that history for yourself. If you just get right. the book off the shelf and or read it online, you won't you won't see that so obviously what's happening. Uh, and that's I think backstory is terribly important for, for getting to feel you know why he would be justified in 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 saying these sorts of things, or why that he was caused to say it. Perhaps well, there's that. But I think if if we start from those starting points and work forward. Um, what you get with Russell ran into difficulties because one of the big issues that Wittgenstein really was concerned with was there was nothing in the Russellian theory, even in the mature version, yeah. that protected you against forming nonsense complexes, right? So, so nonsense sentences caught 
formed from your simpler... Just take your simpler elements. And his example, his own example, which is nonsense, right? That he, the pen table, uh, the table pen holders the book. Right. Right. So this just take a combination of different elements and make that sentence up. Now, that's obviously nonsense. Um, the trouble is, if you start with just raw elements that can go together any way you like... Yeah then nothing prevents that possible combination. And then you need to bring in something additional and from the outside to do that. To, what, to say what makes nonsense apart from right. sense, right? Right. But now you need to bring in extra theoretical machinery. And this, and this is what Wittgenstein's doing. Well, no, what Wittgenstein's doing is avoiding that. Russell, right. Russell's, okay. as he says, Russell's theory doesn't rule that out from step one. Right. And that's a problem for it. And that was a fundamental point about the logic of this situation. So he thinks that, that any theory that, that leads you to this is one where, think about it, you start with the world being composed of things, not facts. Right. Because so the facts is- already come structured with possibilities built in. And if you think that way, one analogy maybe for readers who aren't very familiar with this technical right. material, uh, I use a lot when my teaching is that of Lego. Um, so if you imagine Wittgenstein's world is not the empty element just dumped out on the box on the floor, right. but imagine that the world is always structured some way or another, and it can be inherently restructured, but the possibilities for combination are built into the elements themselves, right? right. There's no additional you might come you might get a, a list of rules that came with the box of Lego and you might consult those about how you should or shouldn't put them together, but they won't prevent you from doing anything you might possibly do. So So, so let, let me see if I got you right. You're saying that for Wittgenstein the 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 stuff that's in the world uh if you order it in the right way in what you say or you order the right way of saying about it, mm-hmm. then you're gonna come up with sense. Yeah, well it's it's the you're making for him we'll come maybe come on to that you're making pictures right. of these elements in okay. your thinking and therefore it's more than this you can't think in a logical thought on his view you because, can't think in illogical thought no because you won't have formed a proper thought so if i if i think it's raining and it's not raining um well if you think tr- contra- contradictions um, right. You haven't thought a substantive thought, right? right? Okay. So you haven't got a sense that, as we there's said no, earlier... There's nothing there that you're, you're thinking, not, really. Well, you're not claiming right. something substantive. But as an ordinary proposition, the other cases that I gave you, you can't form ill-formed thoughts. That's what nonsense is. You, 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 it, they may be... And here's the big interesting question. Sometimes we talk nonsense, though we don't notice it. So analysis... What one hoped... But this wasn't actually, I think, Wittgenstein's view. Um, people hoped that you might be able to dis- determine uh, through analysis whether someone was speaking nonsense. Right. It's an interesting fact about the story, given what we said earlier, that you can't do conduct these analyses. So that's not the job of the philosopher in some sense, although it is still to detect domains of nonsense, classes. Right. And there we didn't – I didn't come back to my final th- – question right. uh, the thing you asked earlier about the, the last domain where ethics sure. falls so take that kind of case um, that's now hanging in the air because it's not going to be a manifest logical proposition right it's not something that's that doesn't say anything but is part of the structure of the way we think or structures well, our moral the thoughts world. right but if I was to say if I were to say murder is wrong right that's clearly also not a fact 
it's not a factual statement about the state of the world. Uh, you're not saying something you can measure, certainly, but why is that different from not being a fact? Well, it's not just measurable. Um, I think the, or at least this is the standard res- the worry raised here. You're talking about something that's absolute, it's not contingent. Right. So it's, it's, it's trades closer to what's necessary, right? If you make those kind of claims, you're making a claim about what has to, ought to be the case, not what happens to be right. the case. And, um, I mean, this is the old, in, in even in ethical, outside of Wittgenstein, the old fact-value divide is, is an issue. Right. Uh, if you want to convert those ways of speaking into, into factual ways of speaking, you, a lot of work would have to be done. So the idea would be um, noting the number of murders per year won't get you to that result uh, or whether there be many or none um, we will still want to say murder is wrong. So it seems to me that a Wittgenstein theory of language uh, uh, requires that you're thinking in terms that only meaningful sentence only sentences that say things that can either be shown to be right or wrong about the world are meaningful. Yeah, well, it's it's um, that, that which you can think. An assumption, or um, he's argued himself into a corner. Perhaps? Well, I think it, it's more like um, I think he's adopted an uncritical starting point from the debates on language, right. uh, uh, and he gives, as you say, a part of the story is that they have a formal unity. So he thinks that all propositions have a general form, which translated loosely uh, for the readers is simply to say this is the case. And if you can fit it into that model, um, when you say this is the case, then it is, is, is saying something about a possible state of affairs. Um, if those state of affairs obtain, what you've said is true, and if they don't, what you say is false. So it's, and nothing else, he thinks, is, is you're not operating in the bounds of language. So what right. can be said, he says, can be said clearly. And what we cannot say, we must pass over in silence. Okay, and this is called, is it, am I right in thinking this is called a picture theory of language? It's often c- c- called that. Um, it's yeah. inspired by a, um, uh, his, in the Eastern Front in, in 1914, according right. to sources, uh, one of his students, Norman Malcolm, recounts this. He, um, he's reading about how they're using models in the Parisian law courts to settle disputes. So what you've got is an example here of... um, So picture is not like the picture hanging on the wall. No. It's picture is in the sense of a model. So imagine you had little elements of the cars and the individuals, and they sort of say one one group of disputants or in the the law case say, this is what happens, Uh, this is how it went down. And the opposite party presumably says, no, that's not correct. It went the other way or something like this. Um, What he was interested in was the way that the elements uh, in the different cases could be used to say things. And then he kind of reverses that analogy and then tries to say, well, think of a proposition itself as a model. Right. So that's the sense in which he's operating with the picture theory. Okay. I mean, what... If you say it's not like pictures, as in images, it's mm. logical pictures or something like. That. So what? Good. Yeah. What is the um, import of using the analogy of a picture rather well, than I mean, anything I think, else? I think in his more German original, that was more right. to build on. It's more closer to the notion of a model itself. So um, the so the interesting um, take will be uh, to say. Some elements, as you point out, of the pictures will be accidental and some will be essential. But what's essential is that it connects up with the elements of the situation so as to form a 
possible proposition with sense. So, so even the idea of picture is itself a metaphor, rather than... It's, well, it, it is. And I think it's... It, it, well, you have something like that um, inspired uh, analogy um, that that was its source, and then what one can say is that um, to fully understand it, you'd need to understand the mechanics of the, of the overall story. But the thought would be you, you can picture a possibility, right? Um, even if it's not the case, it still makes sense. It reaches out to its... its can you give me an example? Well, that, that example was the case of the law court. So right, if I okay, say fine. to you that um, the person was um, speeding at um, 70 miles per hour and I bring out a toy car it doesn't have to be I can do this in words or cars so these are all the pictorial elements are all accidental Um, but what's important is that in each case when I talk about the same situation or I model it with toy elements I'm picking out one situation and I'm doing it precisely so it it picks out that and only that situation unambiguously Wittgenstein uses another metaphor here he says you know it reaches out to reality like a, a ruler but it's reaching out to a possible um, situation. So it's a possible state of affairs. That's what it depicts. It's not depicting things um, um, that are actually the case. Um, they may or may not be actually okay, the case. It's, as long as it's possible, then it's meaningful. That's what as long as it's possible, it's meaningful. And right. in the other cases, um, it's contingently possible is important here too. Right. right? So it could have been otherwise, but it, it turns out not to be so on some occasions. Um, why does um, Wittgenstein think that this way of thinking about language and logic has solved or rather negated the problems of philosophy? Yeah, um, I think he thinks that the problems... He, he solves his, his line in this in the preface is that it solves the problems of philosophy but it reveals also how little has been done right. when, when this happens. I think that the sweeping and important feature of this was, um, as a track back to that debate with Russell, if where does philosophy sit yeah. in, in as a what's its job what can it do um, if it's just like the sciences but not reducing to the other sciences and this right. is a very pertinent question for today because there's a lot of philosophers yeah. who see themselves as just doing more general theories of of in the same mode and sometimes in the same boat alongside Science, scientists yeah. um, Russell and others didn't have that view. They seemed to think that there was something special about the philosophical contribution. Nevertheless, it was a form of scientific contribution. For Wittgenstein, he thinks that these, if this was right, and we followed that thread through uh, of argument that logic doesn't have that kind of status, then it leaves us in two places. If we're concerned not with the merely contingent, right. that would be a domain of the sciences according to philosoph- uh, according to Wittgenstein but if philosophy is concerned always with what's essential right. uh, what's true across possible worlds what's analytic any of those different ways of putting the point uh, then you might, might generally say that what he sees as philosophy is now transformed from the making of positive theories about its domain where things are necessary um, right. there isn't anything one can substantively say so either you have one of two choices you're either rehearsing formalisms and logic, tautologies and contradictions yeah. or other descriptions which are senseless uh-huh. and is strictly speaking. So you haven't maybe talked nonsense at that point, but you haven't said anything, right? right? Or your other option is you trade into talk about things that you treat as if they were contingent matters of fact. Right. But in fact, you can't say anything. You're literally talking nonsense. So basically he's saying that philosophy 
because it doesn't talk about contingent facts about the world is talking nonsense. But clearly, uh, he's advancing a philosophical theory to say that. So why why doesn't he recognise that surely his logic must have gone wrong somewhere Interesting. in order to get to that point? Very good. So, so one of the things... I don't think he thinks he's putting forward a theory, but right. in fact he says he's not. He says philosophy is not a body of doctrine, it's, a, it's an activity. However... That doesn't protect him from the point you're making. And interestingly, of course, he does note this. So his penultimate right. remark at the end of the, of, of, of the Tractatus is that now everything is set to explode, um, so or rather implode. So right. the, the famous uh, ladder metaphor that comes up, um, you, his remarks are elucidations, and if you understand him, then you'll realize that they, they will have to be just a ladder that you climb to throw away. Well, consider, um, as you say, even if it's not advanced theoretically, even if these observations are somehow to be understood as, say, um, revelations right. about our situation, nevertheless, it looks like we're – it looks like Wittgenstein would have had to put into words, so it seems, for the readers, if we did a straight reading of this book, that he must have put into words for the readers what he could not have put into words for the readers if these are going to be general truths that are substantive. If they're going to be truths that are necessary, not just contingent noticing facts right. that could have been otherwise, if they're going to have the status of philosophical remarks, right. then they can't have that status if the book actually says something of that nature. So well, it's, it's, it's got an inherent paradox in it. Well, I would say it's clearly indicative that, you know, he's shown that his reasoning has gone wrong somewhere. If he's, if he's saying, you know, the very facts of what I'm saying to you now are meaningless, and they clearly do have a meaning in some sense, it's probably that, you know, his idea of meaning has probably gone wrong somewhere. Well, I think that now this is tra treading on to, to several different ways you could approach this and many right. different controversial readings. So one reading uh, of late um, billed as the new Wittgenstein readings right. um, um, and they have their origins in the work of uh, people like Cora Diamond and Jim Conant right. is to say um, we, we shouldn't think that he ever made those claims that we were talking I was giving you the story earlier and I did highlight right. that there was a way of approaching this that, that deflates or takes away from the, the, the claims being advanced as uh, substantive propositions themselves. So um, if we to take seriously the idea that he claims not to be advancing any kind of theory, um, what we talk about him doing philosophical clarification, some think that the book is, is sets you up ironically, um, actually for a therapeutic purpose. Right. So the end line is for you to realize that to take it really, um, as they talk about these readings, as the resolute readings. So the resolute reading, when you finish the book, you, you resolutely understand that if you really understand the message of the book, you have to let go not of the, um, of, of the entire picture that this could have presented you those sort of arguments. And you let go of, at the same time, all of the assumptions that lay behind it. So one path is not to say, ah, oh, well... There's something wrong with the theory of meaning it contains, and therefore the other stories would be okay. Yeah. But it would have an even more devastating effect uh, that Wittgenstein recognized from the get-go that he couldn't argue this way. So it was a way of bringing his readers in to the serious depth of the situation. One of the things that makes the book compelling is the po that possibility. That's not the only possibility, of course. I mean, the more standard reading would be to say, and we could come on to this, um, would be to say that um, those kinds of problems 
paradoxical results drive the generation of the later writings in okay. due course. I mean, okay. that's what, or at least that's not the usual official verdict of what makes the transition, but it may be one of the background concerns because oh. there is a recognition at the end of the book that he he has he himself recognizes that he's he's encountered this paradox that the book itself can't be both saying and what what it appears to say and um also at the same time presenting that view of language okay and so we're going to look at the his next step which is the philosophical investigations after this track <laughs> to see 
That was uh, The Church and Invisible. Welcome back to Philosophy Now on Resonance FM. I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and my guest is Dan Hutto from Wollongong and Hertfordshire Universities. We're discussing the philosopher of language, Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, now in the second half of the show in relation to his later theories in the Philosophical Investigations, published in 1953 after his death. So, um... Dan, I wonder if you could tell us, why did Wittgenstein repudiate the views we've just been talking about from his first book? Right, so I think um, where we finished up, um, even though he finishes the first book with an acknowledgement, there's a sort of, uh, uh, well, it's got a kind of paradoxical um, element to it. Uh, He... That, I think, could be one right. reason. The paradox of, course, of, of if, that his own theory is meaningless according to his own theory, right? Well, um, even at the time... Well, he again, like I said, careful with the notion of theory. We'll come back right, to that. Right. But let's suppose that um, he recognises there's a, some form of internal paradox. I don't think at the time of writing, at least if the yeah. tension is there of writing the Tractatus, he thought it was uh, something that would push you away from it. The more technical reason apparently in his middle period writings is that um, part of the story about there being only one complete analysis of every proposition and that they all serve the same function meant that they would reduce in an an analysis to what he called elementary propositions and they would describe the world and those he had to assume would not in any way contradict one another and yet there were examples uh, philosopher Ramsey had um, noticed these where this didn't. It didn't seem like we could rule that out in advance without doing it by fiat. So and basically, his theory, the theory of language as a sort of a logical representation of facts, yeah. is doesn't cover all uses of language. Well, it's not that it doesn't cover all, the, but that's where we're going to get to now. Uh, but that's what fertilely. There was a more of a put it simply like this. There was more of a technical problem about this assumption about there being elementary propositions right. at the base that all function the same way but never could contradict. And that was something that he would have to make a substantive claim himself again about. And we saw moments ago that we really weren't able to make those sub- substantive necessary claims in advance. So this is a problem for the, the original account. But I think that that technical problem, even though it exists, underrates what you, what you were just gesturing at, which no. is the more positive observation uh, is that Wittgenstein came, I think, to realize in due course that um, this was an unnecessarily restrictive imposition. A p- you know, the picture theory itself right. made an assumption, as you put it, about the nature of language, one that, by the way, he, he inherited right. rather uncritically from Russell and the others. Uh, it's, that was in the air. But it was an assumption, nonetheless, that language functioned in one sort of way, right. that language was always a fact-stating activity. Right. If you applied 
the same attention to the idea that the language... Remember, his fundamental idea was that the logical constants don't represent. So suddenly this recognition that some aspects of language, or some logic at least... Sorry, logical constants being not or anything that you'd use in a logical analysis of language, which isn't the language itself. That's right, and, or, not, etc. So the idea that that logical... Well, the so-called propositions of logic don't depicts facts and right. that their elements don't name entities right. so they're non-representational um, so one way you might have gone is to think that um, logic isn't really is a, is a formal aspect but it's not a language itself but now apply the same thought that some parts of language themselves don't represent one of his famous examples is you shout fire in a, in a cinema but you're not naming this or ouch or ow so there's lots of uh, or no itself, right. right? So there are aspects of our... They're not statements of fact, in other words. But not just statements of facts, but they're also not names. Right. Um, so one of the opening bars of this was that all words have names, name objects of some kind. And if you think there's a comparison here that even in logic, not all of their elements pick out logics or denote, uh, denote objects, sorry. Um, so too, you might think, um, well, no, here again, he's taking that same original thought, now apply it to other domains of language itself. And that would break the idea there'd be a formal unity to all forms of language that they're always fact-stating discourses. And and when you get down to brass tacks, that these have elements that denote or depict things. Okay, so please tell us very basically how language now works for Wittgenstein in the philosophical investigations. Right, so he... He moves slowly away from this picture of there being a fundamental singular way in which um, we pick out the essence of things by picking out the names. In a lot of ways, that softens and unthreads things. I mean, he he wonders then what becomes of logic in this new story because it no longer has the hard, as he put it, crystalline purity that he originally uh, assumed. Here, he metaphilosophically, he thinks that what's happened is he's got Which a... Which means thinking about the nature of philosophy, right? Yes, it does. Uh, okay. It means that he's thinking that in these uh, earlier works, he had a sort of a pair of... a frame of glasses on right. that forced the world into a certain picture of the way he saw right. it. And uh, this, some people think, to see him and his later writings as becoming moving. Some people think that the early book was a form of theorizing. Right. He moves away towards a form of uh, of therapy okay. where we move away from those kind of bad assumptions towards a, a, a quiet noting of facts, as he says, about our language games. Right. Introduces these notions of games that we play with language that you mentioned. Uh, like, for instance, or giving an order or asking a question. Countless these, uses. Countless so these, uses. These are examples of language games of being different ways that we might use language. Exactly so. So we would have um, a whole stream of different things that we do with language. Um, when you think about it, giving orders, uh, giving expression to our feelings, talking about um, moral situations and facts or moral um, accounts of things. So what we don't have any longer is... Um, the idea that language functions all in a singular manner. And one has to look to uh, and describe the circumstances, as he puts it, under which we operate with our words. Now, some people wrongly, I think, treat language games as if they, because the notion of games invokes the notions of rules, and they talk about rules as being very central. 
Um, and this gets associated with a certain way of talking in that we're trying to adjudicate what rules would apply to the use of language. I think that's actually not, if you look deeply into what Wittgenstein's up to, he wants to describe the circumstances, the forms of life, the activities, the organic ways in which we operate with language and how it connects. He talks about this many different connections it has with our ways of responding and being. So if you see this as a kind of emergent picture you've traded in i mean i used to uh, talk this way you've traded in the notion of a logical form that right. grounds everything for an interest in forms of life okay which now we see the, the 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 language has shifted from that earlier claim that there would be some in principle analysis always of what we really mean right. and uh, uh, when we say something to the idea that nothing is hidden so we need to look and describe the facts in which we operate within... So you describe the circumstances in which language is used, and that will give you the meaning of language, right? Mm. Does this relate to what he says, uh, what the meaning of a word is its use? Well, he says in many cases the meaning of a word will be its use. So, okay. again, I don't think he'll think that there's a meaning to language. No. It's rather that you'll understand what we should be looking to is how words function uh, in our lives. So he gives the example once of a... Um, Instead of thinking of a bunch of labels picking out items, if you think of languages like uh, the way a locomotive's uh, operating engine room is, you, you need to understand not just that this is called the brake, right. but you understand the function of the brake in a larger system. Right. So you need to understand how these terms um, function in our daily lives, what they're for, what they do, what the activities are enable us to do. That's... On this model, that's where we come into the notions of sense and nonsense. Right. So it's a much softer picture. In, so in yeah, something is nonsense if people just don't use language in that way. Is or that uh, there isn't a strict boundary because we right. might start to imagine scenarios where we could use language like that. Right. Uh, but as, uh, as it happens, if it will turn out to be nonsense if we can find no use for it at all in our language or indeed that sometimes for a period of time we might think that um, this way of using language just doesn't have any grip. Um, but there will be some out, outward bound cases where we struggle to figure out what kind of role that could play in our lives. Can you give me an example, please? Uh, I'll give you the example, the famous one, I think, that was on the horizon anyway, would be yeah. the, the, the private language, the languages of our sensations. Right, so, so I'm experiencing a yellow wall or a red chair. Or... Sure, and that's fine. That kind of talk uh, for us, uh, uh, giving expression to how we see the colours of the room to one another, uh, especially if we're going to talk about um, their virtues, is a, is a public domain kind of thing. Right. But Wittgenstein was concerned uh, in one of the things he targets in famously is uh, the private, in what's known as the private language argument, right. is the idea that um, we only ever have private access to these things. So they're not something that we could... He, he's interested in the thought of... Well, surely it's true you don't know... I mean, you, you only assume that my use of the word red is going to be the same as your use of the word red, right? Well, well this what is they're referring to is... Interesting. So this is the very famous and standard model that he's trying to undermine. Right. So the first would be, um, to come back to this, if you turn that on its head, uh, the normal way that we talked, as you just casually did, about the colours in the room is not one in which you and I have any doubt that we know what we're talking about, right. the same thing, or any doubt about the properties in question. Right. So it, it's, he thinks this is a classical case of a philosophical imposition, where what's happened now is, um, starting from some assumptions that, that are challengeable, we, we've got ourselves into, into a mess. 
And what this reveals... Why is it mess? Sorry. Well, because it turns out that if your colour, as you just said, is something that's logically inaccessible, right, then, you, I, yeah. th- then the idea that we're sharing talk about the same colours, it becomes problematic, to say the least, if right. not downright impossible. So the idea would be, turning that on his head, he looks backwards to the very idea of a private language. Often people present that as an argument, but what he's if you look carefully what he does there, he, he, his questions are centered around um, questions like, well, he asks, well, you could, what, couldn't, you, he has an interlocutor throughout these right. periods, so he asks, couldn't I just note down, you know, a, a, a symbol for the objects, that uh, the colors or experiences I have, and just give it a label? Um, and he points out that just noting something down like that doesn't it get give it a function like we don't know yeah what it uh, means and he raises questions about how it gets assigned its meaning and how it could come to have correctness conditions to be used on other occasions like what would they be but the but around it the interesting thing if you look carefully in those sections is his bigger concern is he asks all the time what's the ceremony for right so that even if you could imagine a somebody trying to write in private code about their inner experiences, right. it's a million miles away from the way that you and I talk about colors in right. ordinary language. So, so it looks like what it exposes is that some of the things that we take for granted in a lot of philosophical discussions, right. when you look at them with fresh eyes um, from this angle, uh, don't necessarily hold up so well. Of, of, just take another so he's saying you know a lot of again going mm. this seems to be a, a trend is that a lot of the problems of philosophy is not un- due to not understanding how we're using language so he's still got that exactly so so some of the um interestingly um so my own take on wittgenstein which is one amongst right. several uh is that there are, there's greater continuity between the early writings and the later writings right. for just the reasons you picked up on okay than she breaks between two theories, right? So the way it's sometimes presented is if he's got a vastly different theory and it opposes the earlier one. I see the I see it as a gr- organically growing out of yeah. some of those ideas, and more importantly, retaining an attempt to clarify, which he claims was the original ambition. So this also, by the way, disagrees with some of the people who think the whole of his work is about therapy, because okay. I think that's not right. So can you explain what you mean by therap- philosophy as therapy? Sure. Um, briefly, because we're... Good. I, I know we're short on time, but the, the example we just gave will help. Um, so if somebody thinks about experience in, in, as something that's logically private, um, it, you get all sorts of further consequences in your thinking that are problematic, and right. they seem to be at odds with a close inspection of our ordinary ways of talking and doing. Wittgenstein thinks those things don't need argument. They need therapeutic treatment. Which means what, though? That's what I mean. So he would want to bring it out that there are some assumptions that are operative that um, don't seem to have any independent basis. They don't have any independent authority. So he would question that and then get you to, instead of producing an argument, get you to, like as the example I gave you, you know, tell us, Tell me more about what this is supposed to look like. Tell me more about how this works. Tell me more about what function it has. So he's teasing out the assumptions you're making in the use of language. I think if you watch doing. his his interlocutor right. uh, discussions, that they kind of go in that way. Uh, a good person to look at that would be Stephen Mulhall, who's okay. written nicely about actually a whole book on the private language argument that takes it in that kind of way. So just some uh, sort of final rounding up questions. And why do you think? Um, 
Wittgenstein has been so influential in uh, the 20th century philosophy? Um, well, the coming, I think, uh, dealing with the figures he deal, did deal with, right. uh, Frege and Russell, who were the founders of early analytic philosophy, puts him in a prime position. I think some of this could be put down to his own personal history, which is incredible, and he gets a kind of cult status. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of puts, I think that's that uh, treatment... I mean, that whole cocktail of, of things, I think, would be to overlook how profound some of these issues have, have been. I think the thing is that when Wittgenstein has identified, we didn't discuss, for example, his work on rule following, we probably right. don't have time to do that. Yeah. But it, it, in many cases, he puts his finger on very, very difficult and identifies deep philosophical paradoxical problems that even the robust analytic philosophers right. had to deal with in some way or other. So I think there's that. Okay. And... What are the implications of Wittgenstein's thinking for how we are to look at reality ourselves and philosophy, any of the above? Well, I think that um, Wittgenstein gives us a kind of good model. If, he, if, if we take seriously the worry that we might be uh, attracted to what he or some have called kind of certain picture theories, some assumptions in our operative in our background that we think are absolutely stable, a basis for doing philosophy. Right. But if he's right that we need to investigate those to use the very language of the philosophical investigations mm -hmm. that we might want to upturn some of our basic assumptions question them look at them afresh i think it gives you a different way of approaching a, a meta philosophy that goes from instead of always producing a theory and justifying it either by science or by appeal to philosophical intuition right. we have a very different style of philosophy um, it offers an alternative way of doing philosophy and seeing how it engages with the sciences the different style being look at the way you're using the language to talk about this thing, well no not is. just language i think that's i think although the emphasis and talk on language in wittgenstein is a great deal as i said earlier I don't think he is just an ordinary language philosopher. Right. So I think he's asking, under the circumstances which this kind of talk makes sense, how it functions in our life. So it is about our way of forming concepts and thinking, but it goes beyond that into our activities. So it, right. it's, it makes you rethink some of the things that you feel as only, put it like this, that only another philosopher would typically agree as being an absolute truth beyond question, whereas... Um, often if we track back to our ordinary ways of, of dealing with these sort of scenarios, we might find that a lot of the things that we take for granted in philosophy are in fact uh, impositions of philosophy. Right? So can, can you give me an example, please? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I think that was, I gave you that one before, but I mean, there will be many other cases about the nature of mind, right. things that we assume. Uh, I'll give you one more uh, that connects with the earlier one. Yeah. So I think you had gestured at this in, in your saying that, you know, look, only I can know that I'm in pain. You can only guess at another's pain. Right. Um, that doesn't track very well if you, you know, just take a simple crude example. Um, were you to see someone have their foot crushed under a, under a, under a train, you wouldn't. You, you'd know they were in pain. You right? wouldn't be guessing. No. Um, so I mean, that's just a simple, uh, just to give you a, a very simple crude case. The idea that that those things are inviolable truths of philosophical uh, truths. But they don't fit very well with our ordinary ways of thinking and doing. And Wittgenstein, of course, will make some claims that sound quite crazy at the first glance, but which need further investigation. Perhaps we should be thinking here more of certainties rather than knowledge. Maybe we need to rethink how the ordinary language of those situations works. Um, so I think there's a lot of mileage in, in rethinking some of our basic assumptions uh, 
and also what, what our role is as philosophers as opposed to the standard idea that we're there to just produce theories or to do another higher order form of science. Okay, well, uh, I think uh, we, that's all we've really got time for. Um, I wonder if you've got any projects or uh, things coming up that you'd like to mention to listeners, Dan? S- uh, certainly. Um, well, I'm, I'm involved with um, Off Tomorrow to engage in a project, con- uh, one of the largest European funded projects, FP7 projects, about yeah. 4 million uh, um, euro based five-year project that we've been working on with 13 other centers, neuroscientists and uh, psychologists and psychiatrists around Europe. Um, and we're off to, for a summer school on that tomorrow in Portsmouth. But the interesting thing about that is just to pick up this last point right. is that's a case in where philosophy is very at the heart of that project. And yet here we are dealing with scientists without being scientists. scientists okay. Yeah. So you've delimited your yeah. domain. Um, Anything else? I mean, just future projects that I have a book project coming out soon on um, radicalizing and activism was the most recent one, but we have a further one about enriching that approach, more on the embodied extended approaches to mind. And I've done other things on narrative and theory of mind, but I mean, all that's... You can look that up on the web. You can look it up. Dan Hutto is what the name you're looking for. Okay, thank you for listening. Please buy my books, The Meta Revolution in Love, Solitude and Destruction, and Philosophy Now magazine too. So lots of things for you to buy. Uh, thanks for Francesco, uh, our engineer. Come back next week.